0: It's funny, people always be like, don't forget about the little people. It's like, why do they refer themselves as little anyway, you know? Why don't you just get big with me,
1: They can see it in
0: my eyes.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of John's Entitled Podcast. I am your host, John. This week's guest is Jared Montague, former drummer, current drummer of the band Taproot. Jared recently wrote a book called True Rockstars, 12 Guiding Principles for Success and Happiness, and has been doing the podcast rounds as of late to promote the book. Um, Of note, he was on the Talk To Me podcast, and Joshua sent me a message asking if I wanted to talk to Jared. And since Taproot is a band rooted here in Michigan, I figured it would be a fun chat. I got some uh, excerpts from the book, read it all in about an hour and a half, two hours, and the conversation is kind of an amalgamation of both just kind of talking about Taproot, about the the book itself, and just the correlation of Jared's life uh, between the two, and it was a really fun chat. It was it was definitely really long. Uh, I think total running time initially was a little under three hours. Uh, I have since whittled it down to a little over an hour and a half, so a lot more manageable. So with that all being said, I am going to get through this intro, get you to the episode, and get you the fuck out of here in a a timely manner hopefully under two hours when it's all said and done uh so without further ado this is my conversation with jared montague of taproot So, we'll hop right into it. I am uh, sitting here digitally (laughs) with uh, Jared Montague of Taproot fame. Uh, Jared recently wrote a book that's coming out soon. It's called True Rockstars, 12 Guiding Principles for Success and Happiness. Before we get to the book and what made you want to write it, let's get a little bit of background about you and and, uh, how you came to be the drummer for Taproot.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. So, I... I don't know how far we're going to get into it, but I decided that I wanted to play drums when I first heard Metallica and Justice for All in seventh (laughs) grade. And up to that point, some of my favorite bands were NXS and Guns N' Roses. And so we're talking probably 88, 89. And I grew up on kind of top 40 radio, so I was really into... Billy Joel and Huey Lewis and Prince and all that stuff I was really into. I listened to Casey Kasem's Top 40. So I really gravitated towards music and I grew up taking piano lessons. But once I heard, I was at a I was at a birthday party and one of the guys had a VHS tape of a, it ended up being a minor threat video and they were doing moshing and stage diving. And I was just like, what are they doing? I've never seen anything <laughs> like it." And so I started asking about what kind of music is this? I'd never even heard it before. And somebody told me about Hey, this band Metallica has this new tape out. So, went to the store, got it, put it on the headphones. At night, I was laying in bed and I was just blown away. For me, it was more of a. It was the talent that was involved with it that really struck me. Just how could they be playing that fast? I, had no, I could pick apart, obviously, the guitar and the drums, but I couldn't believe they were playing that fast and, you know, having all these intricate time changes and all this stuff. And it was like intelligent lyrics, you know, exploiting <laughs> their supremacy. <laughs> I was like, hmm, I don't hear Guns N' Roses talking about that. They're talking about she's got eyes of the bluest skies, you know. <laughs> so uh, so that, shortly after that, a friend of mine got a drum set and and a guitar, so we'd go over to his house, and I think the first song I played was Smoke on the Water on drums. Of course, it's probably a lot of people's first song.
1: Usually on and, guitar,
2: though. <laughs> <laughs> and. And ultimately I ended up buying my own drum set in high school, so I was kinda of a late starter compared to that. I didn't go through marching band or any of that stuff. But I taught myself, I started playing playing along to Eagles and ACDC, just simpler drum stuff and and then after a while I figured out that oh, if I could play that smells like Team Spirit beat, I'd learn how to do cut time on the hi hat with some offset stuff on the kick drum and So I learned something from that beat and then I learned something from the Under the Bridge beat by the Chili Peppers with the way that the side snare hits with the kick. And yeah, so I taught myself drums when I got to college at University of Michigan. I ended up living in the dorm with who would become Taproot singer, Stephen Richards. I lived in our dorm with his cousin and he was a drummer in a band and he's a he's a fantastic drummer, by the way, he was he can play all the slip down stuff and all that. Uh, so yeah, ultimately we ended up getting together and we, I also met my base player Phil at orientation at U of M. So this would have been, uh, August of 94. I met Phil and yeah, by the time we graduated, we had started, uh, you know, playing around as taproot. So Steve and Mike, singer and guitarist, they had always been in bands together, and I lived in a house, me and Phil lived in a house our sophomore and junior year at U of M, and we kind of converted our dining room into a jam room, so I had...
0: <laughs> i sure your neighbors <laughs> so I, love that.
2: That's right. So, uh, yeah, a couple other guys in the house played guitar. There was uh, nine of us in a seven-bedroom house, so... <laughs> I also yeah, don't miss those days. Of, uh, oh, yeah, man. I would be I was the guy that would get really ticked off whenever there'd be people would just leave messes everywhere. So there'd be, you know, 30 dishes piled up in the sink and one time I went, you know, I'd be the one that would like just get frustrated enough and do all the dishes and write the nasty notes and <laughs> your mom doesn't live here and I think at one point I actually said, "Okay, everyone's picking one plate." And then I everyone picked one plate that was their own and then I boxed up all the other plates and I put them down in the basement with everyone's names on them. And then there was only nine plates in the cabinet and each guy had their own plate. So they could never have more than one plate dirty. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's up to where Taproot was formed. So uh, yeah, I don't know where you want to go from there. But we, we, we formed around 97 and started playing shows around Detroit and Ann Arbor a lot. So that's kind of how we got together.
1: So in my time living in Michigan, I have spent time in Kalamazoo living there. I've lived here in Grand Rapids for probably over almost going on 15 years, I think, at this point. And I spent about a a year in Ann Arbor a couple years ago uh, for a job that took me out there. And then I've lived in Lansing uh, for a handful of years, too. And so I've kind of lived all over. But something I was trying to think of in my time in Ann Arbor is outside of, like, the Blind Pig, there's not really anywhere for bands to play that I can think of. And so I was going to see if that's changed in the probably almost two decades since you all were there forming Taproot. Like, was there much of a local scene for you guys in Ann Arbor, or was that the reason you ended up going to like, Jackson, Flint, and Detroit, like to, and even here in Grand Rapids, to kind of build your band up early on?
2: Yeah, that's exactly the case. The Blind Pig was the only place where a rock band could play, and there's some small little jazz clubs, but for the most part, there wasn't a... Definitely not a heavy rock scene in Ann Arbor. There were some <clears throat> some cool, I guess, kind of funk bands. There was a band called The Bucket, and actually, there was a band from Kalamazoo called Need Deep Shag that would yep. come play yeah. quite a bit. And you know, they were they were cool to watch. But what I think, thinking back on it, part of the reason we may have stood out a little bit is because what we were doing was really different from what was going on in Ann Arbor, and <laughs> we were coming from the, I'd say, kind of the corn limp biscuit roots and the deftones and so that's the kind of stuff that we were listening to that was really influencing us and i remember when i heard the first head pe record i was going what is this all about this is cool and we were listening to Zebrahead, and so we're kind of going towards that you know almost kind of like what's the next evolution of the rap rock screamy stuff and how do you start to introduce a little more melody i think that's what we're trying to get to but yeah, outside of the Blind Pig, nothing has really changed, <laughs> and I think the Blind Pig was for sale, I think, about maybe two or three months ago, which is kind of sad. That it I, heard it it,
1: I heard it got bought by somebody, and it's still just, still the same venue, still the same people, basically, but...
2: Yeah, so another place we played kind of local was over in Ypsilanti called Cross Street Station, so that mm-hmm. was basically just kind of like a long hallway that happened to have a stage on the same side as the bar a little bit further down, so th- those are the only two places that were semi-local that we could get to, and... I think we did play at the intersection a couple times uh, you know, out in Grand Rapids. And then we are going to Detroit a lot, so we are playing at the shelter, which is the basement of St. Andrews, and the I Rock and Alvins, oh. and
1: Harpo's, let's see. I sh- maybe.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think we did one show at Harpo's before we were signed. And, oh, it used to be called the Ritz, but then it changed names. Oh,
1: yeah. Camp. Yeah. Play. Yep.
2: Yep. So – yeah, so we kind of found that we had to go to Detroit to get to... And there were there were a couple other pretty cool, heavier bands that were more in our vein, like uh, Factory 81. We didn't end up doing a lot of shows with them. We kind of traded shows a lot. We traded with them in Ann Arbor because they were probably about the same size at one point as we were. They were bigger in Detroit. We were bigger in Ann Arbor. And so, yeah, it was just all about, you know, I, I think it ended, ended up being... I almost feel like a lot of our circle of friends kinda came to that music because they were friends with us first, not really because they were <laughs> big heavy rock fans. It just ended up being that, hey, you know, seventy five or a hundred of our really close friends like to get together and like what we're doing as far as entertainment, so that almost kinda started to build itself, if that makes any sense.
1: No, it totally <laughs> does. It's just kinda weird to think of like every couple of years kind of had a band that like did something in Michigan across the way. And, you know, thinking of, you're really the only band I can think of from Ann Arbor that's, that, you know, has kind of called Ann Arbor home. So I was trying to think of if there was actually a scene that supported you or if it was more like we had to kind of go out and, and build our name somewhere else just because of the lack of venues for us to play.
2: It is interesting. I always, I've always felt like there just, it never felt like there was a unified theme of music coming from Michigan, right? You've got, you could say, oh, well, Detroit's known for rap, but that's maybe because of ICP slash Eminem slash.
1: But even that hadn't really happened yet at that point. Right, that's right. That was like just on the cut. That was probably happening right around the same time as you guys were starting out in Ann Arbor, which I'll get to the Eminem thing in a little bit because I thought that was, that's that's too interesting not to touch on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But so something that's kind of struck me as as interesting is, you know, you went to school for, I'm probably going to get this wrong. Was for psych psychology, was that with your, with a minor in was it it wasn't sociology it was something else medical related. I'm blanking though. Yeah, um, so
2: I, I probably went to school to become a physician. So I at, at Michigan they don't really have a a true kind of pre med major. So I ended up double majoring in biology and then my other degree was in biopsychology and cognitive science, which is one one degree. So yeah, one summer I. Injected rats with dopamine to see if they complete the grooming pattern more often because it's the same part of our brain that's affected in Parkinson's patients. So yeah, that was kind of interesting. But yeah, my, my original intent was to to become a physician. So that's why I went to U of M and I was totally on that path. I took I graduated. I took the MCAT did pretty well. Uh, I was looking at applying to medical school. I'd started working on my master's in epidemiology, which is the study of epidemics at Michigan State, taking some classes in their College of Human Medicine. So yeah, I'd worked at University of Michigan Hospital for four years and in, in various roles and obviously done some research. So yeah, the whole taproot thing, it just kind of took off around 99. And all of a sudden we had you know, we had kind of formed this relationship with Fred Durst and all these major labels were, were calling and they're flying us from LA and New York to showcase for different people. And I, I kind of had to, I'd come to that big fork in the road where it's like, okay, am I going to go do this rock thing or am I going to still become a doctor? And I had to make the decision I decided to give it a shot. And so I dropped out of Michigan State's uh, graduate school program and went on the music path.
1: So, <laughs> How how close were you to actually getting your, your degree? I don't think you mentioned how close you were in your schooling uh, to your master's or whatever. So I kind of was interested to see how close you were to actually finishing your school and if you've actually gone back and finished since.
2: Yeah, great question. So I, I graduated with my two bachelor's degrees for undergrad and then I, I completed a year of my master's in epidemiology. So I would have at least needed another year to graduate with the master's and done a a dissertation or a yeah, research project. And so I, yeah, I would have had another year left to do my master's and then I would have had a master's of science and epidemiology. So a lot of people go into public health or they go work for the CDC with that degree, but I probably would have still wanted to apply to med school and then of course that would have been another eight to 10 years. So <laughs> I, I could have done something with the degrees I had or done another year and done something with the epidemiology degree. But yeah, I, and I, you know, my path took kind of a different, different track. And after I did the taproot thing and, you know, ultimately decided to leave it, I, I kind of fell into a different career and even to this. And so now I've been in my current career for 12 years. Um, I work for a, a global real estate company, which is JLL and, <laughs> and, and I still miss healthcare a lot and I really consider myself a scientist at heart. So I have thought about going back to school, but at this point, you know, I have five kids and my <laughs> career is go- my career's going well and I just wouldn't wanna be a broke college student again just to go back to med school. So <laughs> I don't plan on going back to school anytime soon.
1: You had mentioned you guys collectively as Taproot being into bands like Korn and, and, you know, Limp Bizkit and stuff like that. And something you had mentioned in the book was getting the $3 billy all tape ahead of time. And as I was trying to think, it's like, you know, I know there used to be demo tapes. Obviously, I have the Taproot demo from before your first record even came out. But trying to think of how a band kind of would, like, how you guys would latch on to the sound that sort of was happening Without really having any access to a medium that would allow you to hear all the bands that sort of became your your influences and then eventually your peers, uh, so how how did you guys kind of figure out to start marrying this this new metal sound as it later became? How did you guys end up finding in like finding those bands and getting into that sound and kind of creating your own stamp on it?
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, it happened pretty organically, but we actually we were one of the first bands that were on a lot of those old message boards on the internet and actually the I think the PRP was the of course it was from <laughs> Pimp Rock Palace back, back then. When, yeah. And and that was that was one of the places where we all were going to constantly to figure out what people were talking about and what else was out there. And I, I remember I remember us and this other band, Juice Who Became a were two of the more active bands on there. And I, you know, I think we probably heard about Limp Bizkit from there. And also just hearing about tours that were happening. I think they were opening for Seven Dust. So we heard that they were coming to this place called The Industry in Pontiac in Michigan, which is, I think, more of a dance club now if it still even exists. But I remember thinking, wow, that's weird that Seven Dust is coming there because we knew of Seven Dust. <clears throat> and, and so, yeah, it's kind of like almost when you – you know just going back to how people used to find out about music i remember seeing uh going to see you know corn was the opening band for man what tour was that even was it like suicidal tendencies and metallica or something in like 94 or 5 but yeah it's 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 one of those things where you you know you go to a show and back then people are passing out flyers and tapes and so i think we heard about music through those different things and just talking to people at shows that you go to and so yeah we ended up getting the Limp misket three dollar bill y'all before it came out because there was a used record store in ann arbor and it was actually one of those you know a lot of labels will get promo cds say a month or two ahead of time and they've got a little gold seal on them and it says something like you know use ah,
1: only do not sell
2: there you go and that was <laughs> It was, you know, it must have been some kind of record, you know, record employ. Uh, let me, see, record label employees, kid maybe, or something that just had a big box of CDs and said, "Oh, I'm going to take these to the used record store and get two dollars a piece for them." So we <laughs> we we found the Limp Bizkit CD in that in that way at the used record store. So that's how we got it, kind of before a lot of other people had heard it, and we we're just listening to it like crazy and going, "Wow, this guy's screaming like!" a lot more intensely than even Jonathan Davis was doing. So that's pretty cool. And uh, it just, it sounded like a little bit more raw and not as down tuned and all that. And so I think we really gravitated towards that. And yeah, I think it was just one of those things where, and then of course we liked what the Deftones were doing and their second record had just come out and some of those songs like head up and, you know, shove it, were just like, whoa, this is crazy. And it was a little more kind of like slow down mid tempo really heavy groove-oriented stuff, so we picked up on that, I think, and, uh, yeah, you know, just all that swirl of what you're listening to at the time ends up influencing your songwriting, you know?
1: Um, So you end up leaving college to start Taproot, and something that I kind of thought was interesting, and we're sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, you had talked about when you were trying to get your deal with Interscope that basically they wanted to almost have you do, like, an EP, sort of, like a th- two, three, four songs... If those are good, then, you know, they'll sign you. And if they don't, then, you know, they they just basically get to keep those songs and you don't get anything from it. Uh, Something I was kind of thinking of, too, and and trying to find more correlations between the book and and kind of the, the point of the book, which is guiding principles to basically for success and happiness. So at that point, you know, something I was trying to find the parallel between for that is, you know, at that point you guys opted not to do that because you realized that that would kind of be you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Like, you either you lose those songs and, like, well, now what? Because those were, like, our best three. Right. So, I mean, at that point, you 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 really, at a very young part of your career, before it even became the career, decided to kind of bet on yourselves. You know, it seems like you've kind of done that over the course of your life between your schooling and going for a double major, What most people probably can't even figure out what they're going to do for a major. And then, you know, you bet on yourself to do the band thing did you realize like, how often you yourself constantly took those opportunities to bet on yourself to, and, and how they paid off for you? Like, do, Were you aware of that even back then? Or was that something you became uh, more aware of as you wrote the book and kind of looked back?
2: Yeah, that's really awesome. That's really astute that you kind of picked up on that because at the time I didn't realize it. <clears throat> and I think as we were trying to make those decisions as things were coming up, at least as a band talking about the Tapper situation, at least for me, I think it was, I was just communicating with my network of friends and family and kind of testing this idea out and seeing how people reacted to it. And I think I only had one, one friend's mom who was like, you're stupid. You (laughs) spent all this money in college and you can have a good career, make a lot of money as a doctor. And you know, this is a bad idea, but you know, my parents were super supportive and, all my friends that had started following us were supported and excited about it. And, you know, I think I talk a little bit about in the book, The kind of the last decision point for me was talking to this physician that I work for. Mm-hmm. He's a gastroenterologist. And I said, hey, I have this opportunity. What do you think? And he says, dude, you got to go for it. You can always go back to med school. There's only one chance to go do this. This sounds really exciting. So that really helped me make the decision. So <clears throat> I guess all those times I I just really – I guess took stock of everything that was going on and just tried to make what I thought was a good decision and trying to read the pros and cons around me. And, and yeah, as all those different major decision points came, whether it was leaving the medical school path to go be in a band or leaving the band to go do something else, a different career, or, uh, You know, all those different things. I I like that you said did I realize I was betting on myself because I didn't really think about it at that time. But I'll tell you I after I so a lot of people have asked me, How have you kind of found success in all these different different realms? And I started writing my autobiography and then I realized, Okay, well, just because the way I did things worked for me doesn't necessarily mean that that could work for somebody else so I was looking for a more universal message and that's where I started doing a lot of research on you know what makes people successful but also what makes people happy at the same time because I don't define success as just that you know you're a millionaire or you have a big house or you have a fancy car or whatever I think there's a lot more to it and and that you're you know happy in your success and fulfilled and that's that's a lot more interesting to me but I will say after I did kind of realize that I did realize that while I was writing the book that I was betting on myself. I bet on myself again with writing the book because I, I, I had a couple of situations, or we as a band had a couple of situations where we wanted to do certain things with some of our past music, and you know, stupid me, I went through the process of asking permission to do things. So I found <laughs> an old A an and R person from Atlantic and said, you know, hey, we want to release these B sides and they basically came back and said, no, you can't do that. You're, you legally can't touch any of that stuff that you recorded. So that really ticked me off. And so as I was finishing up this book and I talked to a couple publishing agents and talked to uh, a couple book publishers, I just decided, you know what, I don't want anyone to tell me what I can or can't do with this book. And there's a couple of things that I wanted to do in the book that I don't think had ever been done before. Like I have 20 pages of acknowledgments and probably three or 4,000 people in there. And I thought, you know, probably a major publisher is gonna tell me I can't do that or that's a stupid idea. So I, I consciously decided, hey, I'm just gonna kind of bet on myself again. So I think now that I know that and that it has worked out for me a lot of times, maybe not necessarily, you know, with great financial success, but more, I guess, just integrity and knowing that i was able to do something the way that i wanted to see it through mm-hmm. that's become really satisfying for me and that's kind of why i decided to self publish the book too so yeah great question that was uh that was fun to kind of th- think through and i think that was <laughs> a of you to uh to recognize that that's cool
1: but i think the thing you know with this with this book obviously like you you're trying to get some publicity about the book and you know if you don't kind of find ways to I mean, yeah, I can sit there and be like, oh, there's there's great stories about your time in Taproot and the tours you did with Papa Roach and and all of these things to help sell it. But on the flip side, it's like I, I feel like I'm doing a disservice if I don't try to ask you questions about how the book correlates to things that have happened to you, because that it's basically the the whole reason you wrote the book. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. yeah. So, I mean, that's it's cool. it's kind of like a, a thing where I feel like I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't really try to help correlate the book in different ways and some of the questions I'm asking. You had talked about when you guys were writing your second record, uh, Welcome, that Toby Wright basically challenged you to become a better drummer. And I was thinking about in the times that I have been a manager in retail and food and stuff like that, and I have to basically get the best out of someone, whether they're capable of doing it or I have to figure out a way to to basically pull the best out of them. In the book, you know, you, you kind of talk about how it hurt your feelings initially and how you got upset, but then you persevered and were able to kind of go, like, take it as a personal challenge. Like, Almost like, I'll show you, like, you don't think I'm good enough, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the studio, I'm gonna, like, do, write the songs we're writing, or perform the tracks, and I'm gonna go home, and I'm gonna do some homework on some stuff, and I'm gonna try to write better parts, I'm gonna come back to you, and I'm I'm gonna prove that I I belong in this, this band that I basically helped start, and it didn't deter you, whereas, you know, something I thought of right away, you know, when that happened was, and I don't know if you've seen the Foo Fighters documentary, where after Dave Grohl got basically the rhythm section from, uh, I think it's the get-up, not the get-up kids. um, Yeah, yeah. and the drummer basically wasn't up to par. And so Dave went back and then re-recorded everything. And I was thinking about how that's probably a lot more common than a lot of people think it is, that people come back through and will do re-records or they'll have someone else play the parts because they know they can get it in there and, and get it the way it needs to be. And whether the person ends up finding out because they tell them or they don't, But I like the fact that it really impressed me that, you know, the producer, that Toby basically was just ballsy enough to be like, I don't think you're good enough right now to to perform on this record. And, (laughs) you know, a lot of people probably would have just been like, well, fuck you then. And then like either been a pain in the ass to deal with or the flip side of that is they probably would have given up. And I think it shows... I mean, obviously, you've proven with the fact that like your schoolwork and the workload of, you know, going and doing a double major, having to do your homework, going to classes, trying to do band practices, playing shows on the weekends, probably, I think you had said you had like at least one or two jobs. Uh, In addition to all that, that, you know, you, you put in, you're not one that gives up and anything you have is worth fighting for. And so when I was reading that, it really kind of impressed me that even, you know, back then in a day where people would probably be like, well fuck this, like I've already had one record under my belt, you know, we're a good band, you know, we've done all, had all these successes that you didn't throw the big pity party and then give up, like you you actually went back and and got better. And kind of wanted to, I mean, I know I already just kind of talked about it, but can you kind of go through a little bit more of like what that was like and the headspace you were in for for that during Welcome?
2: Yeah, so at that point, so Toby Wright, we had selected as our producer and he – he had kind of had a reputation for taking bands to the next level and we knew that the way he did that was by challenging people <clears throat> so he did you know he had just come off of i think Seven Dust Home if i remember right and yep. and Corn Follow the Leader so i think Corn Follow the Leader was the big one where it was like wow they went from Life is Peachy to Follow the Leader and now all of a sudden they have no not only did they have got the life on MTV but they you could tell that, in my opinion, the the songwriting was a lot more mature, so Mm -hmm. that's what we gravitated towards, and so we kind of knew that we were going to be in for it, and we had, I think at that point, we probably had, you know, 20, 25 songs written when we first got with Toby after we had toured on the cycle of the first record, so we thought it was just going to be, okay, we're going to pick our best 12 songs, record them, and we're done, and He sat down with a pad of paper and he first, you know, we'd play the songs and then we'd talk about the structure. So that was the first time we really thought about, okay, is this how many choruses does this have? What's the B section doing? How long is the bridge? Are we going back to the chorus? Are we going back to a verse? And so we really started talking about song structure and really tearing those apart. And he really challenged us on those parts to say, hey, is the chorus for this song only the chorus because it's the next part that you wrote after you wrote the verse <laughs> or, and that was really interesting to think about and really think about what is a chorus supposed to do versus what is a bridge supposed to do? And, and all those songwriting pieces. So he had already said, yeah, you guys probably have five good songs. We were just like, what? You know, we were
0: like,
2: <laughs> freaking out. We had, we had, we had these two rental apartments in, in Los Angeles and, we knew that the label was spending all this money. And so we thought that, oh my gosh, we're going to be out here a lot longer than we expected. So yeah, so it was time to get serious. And he was really challenging us. His favorite word was stock. He's like, (laughs) that guitar sounds too stock. That drum part sounds too stock, you know? (laughs) And so, so yeah, we were already in that mode of being challenged and he was kind of ripping us apart and telling us all that we sucked. And so I, I just remember we're in this rehearsal studio mates and that's pretty cool. You mentioned the foo fighters documentary. They, they were there quite a bit. And in fact, there's one, there's one part of that documentary where they're rehearsing and they're actually in the room that we wrote most of that record in. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really cool. It's called mates. And so I just remember looking out the door and Toby and our manager were outside and they closed the door. Beautiful sunny day. We're in this dark room. And, and yeah, maybe later that afternoon or evening, I, talked to my manager and he basically said, you know, Hey, Toby doesn't think you should play drums on this record. And he thinks, I, and I I don't think it was, I don't think it was all about my technical ability. I think it was more about just creativity and, and trying, we were really trying to take the band to the next level. And I was just kind of playing some standard beat along with what we we're coming up with instead of trying to you know, do something creative. So uh, yeah, so I guess my headspace was, it was. It was to me. It was just. It wasn't an option for me to not play on the record that my band was making, and it just. It wasn't an option. So I just had to figure out. All right. Well, how am I going to prove them wrong? And you know, as as I look back at all those experiences, that you know, even even to that point in my life, I was what maybe twenty three, twenty four. I had already learned that hard work was really a way to get kind of to the next level of anything that you were trying to do along with a lot of other factors, but uh, yeah, I just had learned that, okay, if you put in the hard work, it can pay off. And so I went to guitar center and I bought a a practice drum kit, which is basically they've got kind of net Mm -hmm. heads and so they're really quiet so you can play them in apartments. So we'd record some ideas for songs in the studio during the day and I go back to the apartment at night and I even got some drum videos and some drum books to practice my rudiments again. And, But then, uh, you know, not only the technical stuff, but I would also just say, okay, how can I make this beat a lot more interesting? And, you know, if 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 you want to, you know, like our our song, Mine, that was the first song on, Mm -hmm. on Welcome. That basically came about with Mike saying, hey, can you play a trip hop beat? What would that sound like? And so the beat that's on that song is what I came up with. And. So that was that was pretty advanced for what we were doing, and then the song right after poem number three. Everything I don't think I've ever heard a beat like that on any song. It's (laughs) it's it's really weird and kind of choppy, but it's that was my headspace. Was I was trying to be maybe overly creative and just prove that I could do something that was unique and different, you know?
1: It's funny as I was going back through and listening to, I I mean, for me I was personally trying to focus on the first three records. and going back through and listening to uh, Welcome and the song Mind, it really reminded me of like a very Abe Cunningham style beat. Very heavy I on like it. like the hi-hat drum, like yeah. kick drum. It's it's very, it's basically your rudiment three pieces and then playing around that. And so yeah. when I heard it, I was like, man, this sounds like something that they really, at least for you, like went really like an Abe Cunningham. And I was trying to think of, I think White Pony was out right around then or it would have just been coming out. And so I was awesome. like, you know, there's a lot of different drumming techniques and sounds on that. So I was trying to think of like what maybe you would have been listening to out of your contemporaries that would have influenced you as well to kind of think a little outside the box. And that was one of the few records I could think of off the top of my head where there's just a lot of different feels and nuances within the songs of what they're doing, as well as that, that White Pony record being a very departure from what the, the Deftones had been doing at that point. So I wasn't yeah, sure if I, that was so- even a, uh, a an influence on you at that point or not.
2: Oh, I'm I'm sure it was, but well we had just come off tour with Deftones, so we <laughs> after so two thousand after we did Ozfest, we did the back to school tour with Deftones and Incubus and then we went to Europe with Deftones and Lincoln Park. So yeah, I and I I think Deftones might be the only band that we ever toured with, where I think I watched every single night because we were big fans. I'd say collectively as Taproot, that was the one band that all four of us could point to and say, That's that's our influence. And of course, we all had our own individual influences, but as as a band, you know, those were kind of our our, our main line. So, yeah. So I'd been watching Abe Cunningham for, you know, what four, five, six months. So that there's <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that there's definitely probably some influence in there. And the fun, the interesting thing about Abe too is to get to know him as a person, he's like a goofball. I mean, yeah. super funny. I I remember one night we were at the hotel in Europe, and he and he came out and he had this white T-shirt and he had like he'd taken scissors and he'd cut in vertical lines on all the bottom of the shirt. So it was like this frilly shirt, and he just, you know, he, he was like, you know, probably a little bit buzzed. He's just like, what's up? What's up? What you guys up to? You know? <laughs> and, and, and when you, when you get to know that that's how he is as a person, it, it's almost like you can kind of hear that in his drumming style. Like some of the stuff he's doing, that's really weird or off time. I, I think it's just because he's like, Oh yeah, this is sassy, yeah, listen to this. <laughs> and, and it's funny, that's so so yeah, I could totally see that I was probably more influenced than I knew by what Abe was doing.
1: <laughs> Something you had mentioned in the book and I'm trying to remember if it was the Ronner Timer the recording of this or for Blue Sky Research. But you were in the studio when Eminem was working on his follow up to the Slim Shady LP. Yeah. So, obviously, as we were talking a little earlier, you know, you guys were kind of coming up in your own, like the Michigan metal scene, sort of, or hard rock scene, whatever you wanted to call it at the time. And arguably around the same time, over like a couple of, you know, hundred miles away or so in Detroit, Eminem's coming up through the local rap scene, you know, playing at the shelter and so on and so forth. So I'm sure you sort of were around the same venues and stuff and maybe saw his name on local showcases or whatever. But at this point, with him blowing up as much as he had over that short amount of time as well, and now you're in the studio with him, like, was there, you know, you talked about, like, how you ended up having lunch where Dr. Dre was and, and how kind of awkward that <laughs> conversation was, which I won't give away. I'll just say it's very, I feel like it's a very Midwestern white person thing to have happen where you're like, oh, hey, yes, <laughs> and you don't really know what to say. Um, but it, by, by chance, did Eminem ever, like, Coming to check out what you guys were doing because I mean at that point I know Devil Without a Cause by Kid Rock would have come out and he would have done that song, uh, Fuck Off or whatever, with Kid Rock so there he's he's kind of already been in the the metal world for a hot minute and I think at that point he'd already done Warped Tour as well so he's kind of been known at that point around that same time to dabble within that that genre. Did you guys were you you had said you heard basically the what would become the Real Slim Shady. But did you ever have any other interactions with him, Eminem personally, or did you guys show many get to show him any of your music?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you hear you hear through his music that he's a really kind of person. You know, he he takes his he's a pretty private, personal person, and he doesn't really want to be bothered. And we definitely got that vibe when we we're in the studio. I, I tell a story we you know we we had been mixing our our record at the studio Larrabee and. And we've been coming in and out for a week or so. And one day we show up and there's just these huge black guys everywhere with radios and stuff. And and we're like, what's going on? so finally, once we got in, we figured out that Eminem and Dr. Dre were there and they were mixing. I heard that loop over (laughs) again. I heard that from the studio for a whole day. And we figured out that, you know, I, I... the only, that day, I only saw Eminem on the phone one time and he was arguing and just like screaming. So I figured that he was probably arguing with Kim based on what I'd picked up from some of his songs. And, and I, I did get to meet Dr. Dre in the little lunchroom there. But yeah, to be honest, I never really talked to him. The only other time that I, we saw him, my wife and a couple of her friends had come out to LA when we were recording. And we went to the Beverly Center, which is a mall kind of just near downtown LA. And we actually saw him sitting in the food court and my wife says, oh my gosh, that's Eminem. Let's go get a picture. And so we, she walked over to him and, and he's like, can't you see him trying to eat? And he was all mad. <laughs> so then she came back and, and uh, so, you know, she's like, ah, oh, you know, he's such a jerk or whatever. But then like maybe half an hour later, he actually walked back over to the table and he's like, y'all want to do this picture? So, <laughs> <laughs> so we, so we have a picture of of my wife and her two friends and Eminem, and you know, of course it's from a Kodak disposable camera, so it's horrible. But yeah, in the picture he just looks like he's kind of got like this almost frown or scowl on his face. <laughs> he just looks pissed. <laughs> but, nice. Yeah, yeah, and you know the Eminem thing's kind of weird. I, I do remember hearing his name a little bit, but not not as much as I did like an ICP or Kid Rock. I mean, I feel like those guys were in the scene kind of grinding it out a lot more, and I you know I think Eminem. In fact, I just watched that documentary uh, on HBO. The the defiant ones or the deviant ones. Okay. It's oh, it's freaking awesome. It's it's the story of Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine and. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been hearing about yeah, that. Yeah, finding yeah it goes into a lot of their own histories and you know and Interscope and you know uh, Beats by Dre and then Apple Music buying them and all that. Really, really cool. Uh, but they even talk about. It. I, I was reminded watching that that. Essentially, Eminem just had a a demo tape that I think Dr. Dre ended up listening to, and so he almost kind of got. I feel like Eminem kind of got plucked from Detroit, who wasn't really out there grinding it, from what I could see, you know, being around Michigan, and he just said, "This is a talent that we can't deny. We've got to get this guy going," you know. So,
1: kind of uh, speaking to some other bands that have, when you played with them, and I, I've kind of since have, have always referred to this as like the Seven Dust principle, where it's like Seven Dust took out so many bands and then just went on to skyrocket past them. But That's they, right. They, it was like they were like the best a <laughs> as far as being a live <laughs> band for touring. Like if you wanted to be successful and like go to that next level, like go tour with Seven Dust and then put out a record. Uh, and you would just apparently achieve enough. like superstar like Stained and just got so many bands. Um, but you guys had gone out with Papa Roach on the Infest record. Yep. And, you know, it's it's funny to, when reading your book and thinking about some of these timeframes and, and remembering when these records came out, but it was interesting to think about you guys being on the road with them and being able to see them break so big, like, right away. Like, you know, going in a day and age where albums actually sold and you could literally see the what the album sales do, was doing or you know the the exposure on MTV and stuff like that when that was still a viable platform yep it's it's interesting to kind of think about that in correlation to where the band is now because i mean i remember seeing them on the love hate tragedy tour at the orbit room which holds i think about like 2200 people or so and non point also at like putting yep. out kind of a stinker of a record uh but collectively i think maybe they only pulled in like maybe 4 or 500 people And they were basically written off after that. And then they put out, you know, the next record and then reshot them back up. But it's interesting when I was thinking about that, like with some of the bands that you've toured with and seeing them at like their lowest or not their lowest, at the earliest uh, time before they like really were anything, what was it like kind of touring Papa Roach? And did you know that they were going to be as big as they became? And is it kind of weird to see where that they're still out there and still a very viable rock band? to you
2: yeah it, it was you know Papa Roach was definitely one of those bands that you could just you could just feel that it was happening and like you said it was very visible because you know our that tour that we did with Papa Roach was both of our first national tour so and we 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 had both built similar followings in our respective places. So we had kind of built a pretty good name for ourselves enough to get label attention in Southeastern Michigan and they had done the same thing in Northern California. So we drove out to uh, Sacramento, which is where the first show was, where they were from, to start the tour. And so that would have been, I think, April of 2000. So it was right after we had gotten signed and we already had our first record recorded. And yeah, the initial plan for that tour was to for Papa Roach to headline everything west of the Mississippi, and then we'd flow back over and end the tour in Michigan, and we would headline everything east of the Mississippi. But when we started that tour, <laughs> Infest was, you know, uh, Last Resort was already blowing up on TRL, and, you know, that was another fun time back then because it was like the battle of the hard rock bands versus the boy bands. So I think. People kind of latched onto that, and everyone was calling in and voting like crazy because they didn't want to see Insync and Backstreet Boys beat Corn <laughs> and get and Papa Roach. So that was a really exciting time in music too, and I think that really helped fuel a lot of that excitement. But yeah, so we played in we played in Sacramento and I think San Francisco. We played a show in Palo Alto, I think, and I just remember during one of those shows we heard the first week numbers come back. Well, no, I think I think they'd sold like. 26,000 records the first day and then when the, when the first week came back, it was I don't know, 100,000 or 120 and we were just like, oh my gosh and so we were both in, both bands were in bands and trailers when we started and like a week later, the label had sent them out, uh, awesome tour bus and so that, it was like, okay, yeah, we see where this is going so, <laughs> so yeah, and it's interesting I, you know, I think I think I mean, those guys are – I still consider them good friends. I I still am able to keep in touch with with, uh, a lot of the guys. And it's – you know, I think a lot of it goes back to just that hard work and being a good person and treating people well because they have always done that in the business and they're really good people and they're hard workers. And somehow they always – in my opinion, they always find just a little – a little something to tweak in their sound that makes – the next record, interesting, and exciting to listen to. Like that last record feel, kind of our fear, kind of felt a little digital to me. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is kind of cool. You know, they're doing something different. And I think that they've always done that really well. And like I said, they're just really good guys. They're humble. When I see them, they still talk fondly about that period of time and that tour. And I think Jacoby was just on XM. They did a takeover thing, and he was talking about Taproot, like, you know, two months ago. So that was really cool um but it's funny you mentioned the seven dust thing i mean so when we started the music as a weapon tour chevelle was the opening band mm-hmm. area, you know, and then before us and then uh we toured with lincoln park and alien ant farm alien ant farm opened before us so then of course they blew up with the smooth criminal song and then even we toured with chevelle after music as a weapon and uh 30 seconds to mars was the opening band before us so you know it's it kind of one of those things looking back on it I'm not really sure why a lot of people say how come you guys weren't bigger and you know who knows I mean there's there's thousands of factors that go into it and you know it is what it is I mean we we just didn't I don't think we had you know our labels always told us that you guys are one hit song away from being you know
1: the cliche whatever, thing that says, or
2: yeah. and 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 we just never had it you know I I think a lot of people thought that That song should have come for us after Poem did, but we went with Calling as our lead single from Blue Sky Research, and Calling didn't react like Poem did. It was a little more mid-tempo, maybe it's not what people expected from us, and so who knows, you know? A lot of factors.
1: But going back to 30 Seconds to Mars, so it's funny that you, you toured with them when they still had their first record out, which sounds nothing like anything they do now
2: and coincidentally
1: enough i saw them play the intersection opening for cold when cold was getting ready to put out you're the spider and what they were doing for that tour for cold that is was basically doing like a vh1 storytellers type thing where they would discuss what was going on for every song it was basically like an an evening with um (laughs) that's cool but the flip side of that though about 30 seconds tomorrow is that was interesting is i remember seeing the band and not realizing that jared leto was the singer of the band until like after the fact Right. And that dude was so nice. Like he like uh he signed like my CD booklet and all that kind of stuff and was very very polite other than to a heckler that was there and he goes, "Oh, were you asked to come open for this show? Your band isn't on this bill? Okay, well shut the fuck up. And you you paid to watch <laughs> us, so shut up." But regardless, you had a pretty interesting story with Jared and I had kind of wondered you know, Jared at that time had was already Pretty successful in the movie industry, and so we had kind of already gotten the notoriety of being famous in another medium. And you talk about how he ends up, of all places, Delaware, uh, getting you a book, and it was a not cheap book. Uh, right. You still have the book, I would assume. I
2: absolutely do. Have you... Yeah, so we were we were in I think it was Dewey Beach, Delaware, and we were playing Maybe. at like a. <laughs>
1: the,
2: the place was like a I think it was like a hotel. I mean, it felt like the, the ballroom of a Holiday Inn or something. Does yeah. that sound right? Do you know that venue?
1: Uh, there were very very few venues in Delaware. One of the few that I remember before I left uh, was the Big Kahuna, which now I guess is something else, but it's over by Dover Downs slash the casino. Um,
0: okay. Dewey
1: Beach, yeah. From what I remember, it was like most like a like a hotel venue attached like a hotel or something that was like a bar type thing that was attached to another building uh and from what i remember hearing from the few friends i've talked to since and seeing bands that go back and have kind of talking to them about the delaware scene or lack thereof is that apparently <laughs> almost anything that people were able to go check out a lot of times they'd have noise ordinance issues and stuff like that so a lot of the venues close excuse me close down so the one at Dewey Beach, I think you are correct. I think it was attached to like a hotel or something, and I don't think it lasted very long. So I... yeah,
2: It felt like it was kind of a vacation spot or something, and we, in fact, right next to the venue there, they had jet ski rentals, and I think the, the venue had set up that we could rent jet skis for the day. So, of course, you're right there. I guess that must be a, a bay to, that yeah. goes out yeah. to the ocean. And so, yeah, it was, they had an area that was kind of roped off, and they actually let us jive Jet skis and there's actually some good waves and yeah we had a, a blast that day but also connected that area is a little bookstore and and I think I went over I went over there with uh, Sam the drummer Chevelle and, and Jared and we were looking at books and this probably probably my favorite book uh, except for the Bible which I love uh, is is uh, Guns Germs and Steel by this guy Jared Diamond and he's an anthropologist and. Basically, the book is really cool. It kind of talks about why did humans, you know, so it it goes back to prove that genetically, you know, if you believe in evolution, which I do, even though I'm a Christian, too. So that's a whole interesting thing. But, you know, that that, uh, you know, that humans started in Africa and we can all trace our our genes back to there. And then it talks about how humans migrated throughout the rest of Earth and genetically you can figure out how new humans are in each part of the of the planet. So even like, you know, Hawaii and some of those island places are the most, you know, uh the the newest humans genetically if that makes sense. So anyway, it's it's a really really cool book and it talks about it's called guns, germs and steel because it talks about how when we migrated to certain places that, you know, we had been in Meso- Mesopotamia area for so long and we had Start that allowed us to de- develop some technology, but then also it helped us to build up immunity because now we were in one place and we weren't hunter gatherers anymore. And as we started traveling to other places where native folks were, we had built this uh, up this immunity, and we actually brought diseases to them that they weren't that you know they weren't immune to. So that killed off a lot of native people uh, from where all those Mesopotamians went to, and so that's kind of the whole guns, germs, and steel thing. Anyway. Uh, that guy, Jared diamond had written a new book called collapse. And I was, I remember looking at it at the Delaware bookstore and it was really thick. Is and I think it was probably like 44 bucks. And I just remember looking at it and Jared Leto was like, Oh, Hey, what's that? And I said, Oh, it's this anthropologist. And I loved his first book and this is really cool. And I put it back and continued to shop around and maybe five, 10 minutes later, we walked outside and Jared came out and he had a bag and he's like, here, dude, I got this for you. I was like, no way. Are you serious? And he says, yeah, yeah, enjoy it. And yeah, so he had bought me this book. So I thought it was cool that a Jared had bought a book by Jared for Jared. So <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't have him sign it. And, and that's fine. I think that's probably cooler that I didn't. But uh, yeah, that was a really nice gesture. He was a super sweet dude. And it's interesting that I, I don't remember I don't think I ever had uh, a conversation with his brother, Shannon, he was kind of just off doing his own thing and yeah Mm -hmm. jared have his his mess of fans there that you know because he's a good looking famous actor guy but yeah also just a really really nice dude and and uh yeah and tomo's really cool too he's from michigan
1: yep detroit if i'm not (laughs) mistaken yep in doing the research for this like you know you, you guys talked about in the book how long it took to write blue sky research uh, as far as the amount of money that was spent, the, the fact that the label tried giving you guys co-writers to help you to write songs and so forth. And something, actually, the more I listen to that record, and I have a thing that it's that is kind of unique to me, I guess. I always like the records that people don't like uh, <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. Do you like Deftones'
2: Saturday Night Rest?
1: Yeah, I'm actually doing uh, a Deftones discography run through with Fallon from Kitty. Um, oh, are oh, cool. Yeah, so we've been we we just finished up uh, Diamond Eyes, and we're gonna be doing the next one uh, next sometime in the next like couple of weeks. But so
2: what do you what do you think? I've got kind of a, just an interesting story that I don't tell in the book that made me think of this. What do you think of the the self titled record? So that would have been the one that came after White Pony,
1: right? Self titled record, I really like it because at that point Steve yeah. Stephen had decided to go from the sixteenths and down to the C-tuning, to using the seven strings. Chino's playing a lot more guitar with the band. So the band and Frank, and this is something that if you go back and listen to Fallon Chats, basically from White Pony on, Frank really gets involved with filling out the band's yeah. sound and and incorporating a lot of what he does. And you hear a lot of it on the record, but when you go see some of these songs live, like you really can hear what he's doing. And it's sometimes like a song like Minerva, it's not about what's necessarily being played it's about what's not being played that makes right. the dynamic so much better it was one of those things where there's so much stuff going on on that record that showcases like that the band can do anything however there's some missteps like the one that basically i felt like was basically just a, an excuse to try to launch team sleep under the deftones moniker yeah uh, lucky you that was on the matrix That's good, way to put it. good stuff but it's like you know i think for people who are waiting for and expecting white pony too like i think I think they made the right, right step in doing what they did by not basically making a white pony too. Yep. However, I feel like it's taken people at this point, almost 10 years to finally admit that that's not a bad record. I was definitely going to bring up you doing the, uh, the mic noise <laughs> during their sound check <laughs> on white pony. Cause to me, that's really funny. And I, I don't think I would have ever thought to have done that, but I wanted you to, to tell that story on here. Cause I think it's very funny. Uh, but go ahead and tell your Deftones story that you, you were setting up for.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty simple. But I, when that, you know, when the fourth record came out of the self title record, I, I, I think I feel as a big Deftones fan, I, I think that's one of the great things about that band is I I I've grown to expect that I won't love the record right away because I think kind of like we we talked about with the Papa Roach thing, they do a nice job of tweaking it just, a, just enough that it's taking them in a slightly new direction And you're going to have to listen to it and kind of figure out what it is before. You're not going to figure out where they've gone on just that first listen before you have some time with it and you absorb it. And that fourth record definitely grew on me a lot as I continued to listen to it. And I I knew pretty quickly that I liked it and that it was going to be one of my favorite records. But we ran into Chi at a show maybe – I don't know, two or three months after that record came out. And I just remember and it was probably one of the last times that I I saw Chi, so of course we had done most of our touring with them on the white pony cycle. And I just I just said, Oh hey man, how you been? Got a little caught up in that stuff and you know, I said, you know, hey, I love the record, it's really cool. He's like, Yeah, I don't really like it. And he was just dead serious. I mean, and I I I got to know him well enough to know that he He wasn't joking. He just didn't like it. And so I think that's another interesting piece about that band is they, you know, such strong personalities.
1: But in kind of going back to Blue Sky Research, though, something I noticed, honestly, and and you can tell me I'm wrong, but I feel like, honestly, your song structures and your, your choruses and your hooks were so much better on Blue Sky Research than anything you had done Previous to that, and I think the arrangements were better. The parts led into one another better, and I even think the clarity of everything was better. Like, because even going back and listening to to Welcome, like you know, a song like Mine, where just it, there, there's just such a fight for space up front. It's like yeah, okay, here's here's the bass and here's the guitar and here's all the drums playing over it, but it sounds so stacked on top of itself to me that it's like you just kind of lose the clarity of each individual thing. And it just sounds like kind of like a garbled mess at times. Like, and yep. I, I, I mean, I know Toby Wright is a great producer, and I think a lot of the records he's done is great. But sometimes, as just a fan of music and listening to so much different music, when I listen to Blue Sky Research, I'm like, this. I feel like it should have been the record that took you to a bigger level. There's actually a lot of songs I feel like could have been on an active rock radio even now. Yeah. I just don't know that the either the label thought that they were good enough to be there because it wasn't what active rock radio sounded like then. It then made me start thinking about the different avenues we have now with like, you know, terrestrial radio, like XM and, and Spotify. And like, you know how people hear their music now, because that's really, and you kind of mentioned in your book, that's really the end of people buying physical music the way they do. And the unfortunate thing was, is, you know, calling, which one of my favorite stories in your book about that song, and I've said this. I remember saying this to my friends when it came out. And I would go, "I love the deaf Leopard of the kuh kuh instead of fuh 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 foolin." I was like, "It's foolin! It's that's the that's the chorus. It's fucking foolin!" Yeah. And people were like, "Nah, th- no." And I was like, "No, it totally is." Instead of fuh fuh fuh, they went a couple letters down into kuh kuh And no one, everyone was just like, "Oh, this band sucks. Now nah, they're not. It's not good." And and I remember like kind of going to bat for it when it came out and really enjoying it. And then it's just, you know, something I've not really thought of for a while. And then going back to it, I was like, man, these songs are really good. These, the, the production on it and the writing, I think is one of the stronger records you had put out. I just don't know if it's the fact that like new metal was kind of going away at that point and metalcore was sort of starting to come in. And so obviously the shift of not only what the popular heavy music is, but the fact of your your loss of active radio, the way it typically was, You know, when you talk about budgets and stuff like that, and something, you know, that I'm going to kind of ask this question, but it relates to Blue Sky Research as a whole and what I've just said, but you, you, I feel like have had an adaptability to learn your time in the, like, the time in the band in not only just the band itself, but the music industry, but how have you also applied maybe something that you learned from like blue sky research and just the, the tumultuous time of trying to create something and and kind of coming out on the other end of it. How have you applied that to your job that you ended up taking around the same time of, of that recording process?
2: Yeah. Yeah. All, all good questions and good topics to think about. So, (laughs) sorry. uh, No, no, that's all right. You know? So yeah, blue sky research, we, we spent a year, in LA and it was the same situation with welcome. We had gone home and written some songs and we probably had, you know, 20, 30 songs that we thought we were going to be able to knock out. And we started working. We met with all these different producers. So, you know, some of the best of the best Don Gilmore had done the couple of Lincoln Park records and Howard Benson was coming off a big POD record. And, um, and I think he did, did he do a Papa Roach record? Yeah, I think he did. And yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. So then we ended up going with Michael Binehorn who was probably my favorite record. It was Soundgarden, super unknown. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we, we kind of, he was kind of known as a song guy and similar to how, why we chose Toby for welcome. He was known for taking bands to this next level. So we started working with him and, you know, he just wasn't, he had some good ideas. He just wasn't challenging us as much as Toby had and, so I remember thinking, oh well, maybe this is just because we're at a we're at a new level, so we there isn't as much challenge to happen, and you know ultimately the songs that we had. So once a week, our A and R guy would come into that mate studio, same same spot, and they'd kind of want to hear what we're up to, and then the conversations go and happen outside behind closed doors, and and yeah, just the the conversation was. They don't have the record that we need to take this band to the next level. So keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. And so, you know, meanwhile, you know, we I mean, L.A. is nice, but it's not <laughs> home. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's challenging when you don't know what the end game is in sight to just know that you've got to go back in the studio, keep grinding it out. So. You know, I mean, it, it sounds kind of glamorous that, oh, yeah, my job is to wake up and go write music. But no. when you're sitting there, <laughs> the same three dudes every day, you know, after you've ate your, eaten your Subway or Quiznos for the day and going, OK, now what are we going to do for eight hours to try to come up with what, you know, is next for us? It's it's challenging. So um, so we decided to interject some new blood. And so, you know, some of the stuff that you're talking about with the improvement in the songwriting, I really think came from we spent a week with Billy Corrigan and we the label, you know, there's a lot of horror stories out there about labels telling people to do something or what you want to become. And and fortunately for us, I think we had a good A&R guy and a good manager and they really gave us a lot of leeway. They didn't go in and say, you need to have this kind of song. They just felt like they They, needed to see growth and we hadn't grown. So they they allowed us to come up with this short list of people that we would work with because we were definitely against working with anybody that's kind of your polished songwriter type. And so I think Dave Grohl was on the list and Billy Corgan's on the list and, and Jonah from uh, far was on the list. He's the one that ended up kind of co-writing that chorus for calling. Um, and uh, I was going to, I was going to say one more. Oh yeah. We actually, uh, Nick Hexham from 311. he was on the list and actually Steve wrote a version of birthday with a chorus that he wrote. <laughs> and It <that> was, <laughs> It was really cool. He, um, it sounded just like a three eleven chorus. So birthday goes. If I had just one more day, and I think Nick's chorus was like, "You always bring me down. Why bring me down?" It's <laughs> horrible, horrible, horrible. so. But we ended up not using that. So anyway, we went to Chicago. We wrote with Billy Corgan for a week, and we met with. I told the story in the book. We met with them the night before we were going to start writing on a Sunday night in this bar and we said hey so what do you think of our music and the main thing he said was you guys have this formula you guys have this quiet verse and you're on the tight hi-hat and then all of a sudden in the chorus you stop on the distortion and you ride the crash cymbals, and that's your that's your dynamics for your songs you go from this meek verse to this loud chorus and that's all the dynamics you have and you know he kind of was kind of like oh wow he's right as we started thinking about it and So in talking to him about music that he likes to listen to, he said that he was listening to music from the 20s, because in the 20s, you didn't have a whole lot of availability of different changes in, say, effects for instruments or volumes. Right. And so he said that artists from the 20s had to move their songs through chord changes and through smart song structures and that kind of thing. So that's really what he helped us understand when we wrote with him for a week. And I think even though we only wrote with him for a week and he uh, you know only got writing credit on three of the songs, I think we took that philosophy back to the studio and we wanted to make sure that we were, you know, one thing that Billy said was he said, you know in my opinion, like the bridge should always beat everything else. like you have your verse that steps up to your chorus and you go back to your verse. And he's like, the bridge needs to be the best part of the song. It shouldn't be the chorus. That should be where it takes you somewhere else. And, you know, that's the part that you want to hear again. But, oh, my gosh, now the song's over. So now i got to go listen to the whole song again so I can get to that bridge again. <laughs> and and I think before – and so we started thinking about things that way. And I think before that, the bridge was always just kind of an afterthought. We always just says, okay, well, now what could we go into after this that would still kind of make sense and not be too abrupt and – Um, so I think he really brought that aspect to the songwriting and, uh, yeah. And
1: thanks for defending calling. (laughs) Uh, So to me, it's like, I remember hearing calling as the record and I was like, oh man, this, this band kind of is very much before I knew the Billy Corgan story or anything like that. It's like the band finally realized how to write a song that wasn't the same thing because, Right from uh, and that's something I was actually going to bring up is my old roommate Chris Hartley, who used to be in the band Superstar. That he was there and played the show that you guys got signed on. That band eventually ended up dissolving and then became Camilla and became a pretty big band in our local scene, getting a lot of those like Jager independent independent band sponsored things, opening for Corn when they played Orbit Room and so forth. But the interesting thing too. Two more stories that correlate sort of to things that you have talked about, one of which Chris actually was one of the finalists uh, when Limp Bizkit did that search for a guitar player. Oh, is that right? Wow. He made it back as one of, I think, like the last eight or so people. And something that I was going to correlate it to was when you were like, oh, I have my best couple of songs. Like when Interscope was looking at you guys and same with Biscuit when they were doing it. It's like you can't play any covers. You're not playing any of our songs. Bring us what you have. And Chris is one of those people... I've known him most of my adult life, that he has always been computer savvy. And so he has folders full of stuff dated from, like, 97 and, like, all of his riffs and this song or this song version 19.2 and so forth. <laughs> and so I remember, you know, he made it that far to to try out for Limp Biscuit and made it look like he might actually make it. And wow. One of like and then they put out the uh results may vary record. And I remember texting him, I go, Dude, that new song, Eat You Alive, that sounds like one of your riffs. It sounds like a riff you would write. And he goes, It is my riff. And I go I go, Are you shitting me? And he goes, No, it's my riff. And he goes, So I went. That was one of the first things I wrote. Like that I jammed with them. And he goes, It's not the first time that bands actually technically taken a riff from me. He goes, I gave them a demo tape of one of Camilla's like first demos or whatever. And he goes, and I don't remember what it was, but it was on Hot Dog, or Chocolate Starfish and Hot Dog Flavored Water. It was, like, one of the other singles off of that record. And he goes, but I gave it to Wes, and then sure as shit, like, that riff ends up being in in the thing. And at first I was like, yeah, I don't don't know, but then, like, he goes in his Rolodex of, like, hard drives and finds this, like, thing and pulls out the riff, and I was like, that's the riff, and it's got the time date stamped on it from, like, when it was, like... So, I was like, holy shit. I was like, oh, I guess one of two things. You can sit there and be like, well, Limp Bizkit thought my stuff was good enough to be like a hit single and that I can write stuff like that, or you get bummed because you just lost out on, you know, your riff. But your story of like basically going with Interscope and and trying to put your best foot forward and potentially losing your songs, like, I was going to talk about how a friend of mine basically almost got to be in Limp Bizkit and then basically instead got his riff stolen. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And then,
2: I, so I, I believe that a hundred percent and, and yeah, I guess we never really finished that thought or I didn't finish that thought, but yeah, we, we got a production deal from Fred and I think there's even this diary of Limp Biscuit Kid Rock show that was on MTV where he said that he was going to sign Taproot and 30 seconds to Mars to a production deal. And we were excited at the time because of course that was our first mention on MTV, but, but yeah, we got the deal and, we read through it and yeah, it said, you're going to record your best three songs with Interscope slash Flip. And if we like them, then we'll use those for the record that you'll sign to. Or if we don't like them, we still get to keep the rights to those. And so, yeah, like you said earlier, those would have been our three best songs and we didn't want to kind of go out like that. But I remember when Limp Biscuit was doing that contest that the buzz within the industry was, oh, they're just doing that. So they can have this big Rolodex of riffs to choose from. So it doesn't surprise me one bit that, you know, I've never heard a story where somebody knew somebody where one of the riffs made it on there, but I think that was part of the intent from the beginning.
1: One of the things about that though, is that obviously you couldn't record you playing with them. And at that point, part of the final process, because before it was just, you go up there, you, you jam. And then if people thought you were good enough or whoever was doing the contest, that person would then, you know, forward it to whoever. And then, you know, the, the goal was to, I guess, like the last 20 or 15 or however many it was, got to jam with the band and just kind of see how that vibe worked. So right. Chris in his, he, he still can't find the footage. It's on a hard drive or a tape somewhere, but he had someone sneak footage of him playing with them. So he has it somewhere of him probably jamming that riff with them. Um, you know,
2: one thing I could, I'll go back to, I, I remember that I didn't finish the thought, but you asked about the, what did that experience of the blue sky year long thing? How did I apply that into you know my career? And I think, I think what it taught me was perseverance and tenacity. And, you know, that the whole thing of where, you know, even, I think hard work is one thing, but to keep picking yourself up over and over and over again, I talked about going, You know, we talked a little bit about going into that same room and trying to reinvent yourself and trying to figure out how you're going to approach something new. And I think that's just that's kind of hard in life in general. You know, you you can get into these ruts with your work or with your marriage or with anything, really. And and it's okay. How can I recognize that I'm in some kind of a pattern that isn't good and look at it from a, you know, a, a higher level view and say okay I'm gonna change this or I'm gonna just keep going because I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and yeah I remember when when we were in the thick of it and we didn't know when we were going to be finished and when we were going to go home it felt like wow this is never going to end because there were (laughs) four or five times that we thought we were almost there and then you know the door was closed and we had to keep writing so it was really frustrating but I think I you know knowing that there was an end game and what kind of came after that and even though you know, ultimately that record didn't sell very well for all the reasons we talked about, or we think why it didn't sell. Um, you know, led me to a totally different career path. I've learned enough times that you know, change is part of life, and even though it can be really painful when you're going through it, that you know something else is going to come of that, and it's always going to work out okay. So I think that's what I what I learned from that. And so I don't I don't really stress out about you know, the potential of change anymore. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I enjoy my job. I make good money at my job, but if I found out tomorrow that I'm going to get fired, I'd, you know, probably be bummed out for a little bit, but know that the old, the old saying, when one door closes, another opens and okay, let's see what's next. And so I have a lot better attitude about that now, I think.
1: Kind of piggybacking <laughs> off of that, something you end up talking about leading into your new career that you, you've been at now for 12 years Uh, was your last tour with the band with Taproot and how you kind of had seen the writing on the wall the music industry was changing and you even break down the numbers which is is interesting to me like I said a lot of behind the scenes stuff I find interesting so something you had taken upon yourself for the last tour you did upon announcing like you know I'm going to be done after this this run was you ended up being a tour manager and kind of everything else it's kind of sounds like uh the sort of like the the tour manager is kind of like your accountant your you know your manager your your everything it's it's it has one name but it's so many things depending on the day i've learned from dealing with tour managers and having a lot of friends in the industry who are tour managers and just hearing the things that they have to go through on a day-to-day basis yeah the
2: guys used to call me the dad the band dad i mean one, one of the one of the hardest things a tour manager has to do is
1: gather up everybody at the end of the
2: night (laughs) and get them back in the vehicle to go either to the next gig or to the hotel i mean you're you're kind of a you know you're a herder to some degree
1: yeah (laughs) but Um, you're right but something that was that i kind of wanted to again kind of correlate to the book and and kind of going back to the, the the guiding principles of success and happiness and so forth you figured out that the band wasn't making money on their tours from a very personal story of you being on arguably one of the bigger tours in your respective genre at the time and having no money literally uh which seems like an like a a weird anomaly like it shouldn't happen um but at that point you take on the role of sort of like your finances and figuring everything out and really other than just having been around people who do it it's not something you've ever done you have no experience really doing it. And something I kind of was wondering was you figured out how to make the finances work. You figured out how to budget everything. You kind of looked at the tour as a whole, looked at how to make it work so it's successful for everybody. Not just you, everybody. And you probably could have taken more money based on all the things you were doing because, you, like I said... You were tour managing, but you're also sort of like your booking agent of sorts by looking at the routing, figuring out the most cost-efficient way to do everything. Like, there are other people in the industry that kind of do those things, your booking agent and so forth. Do you think if you would have taken the reins earlier that you could have made the band more financially successful in a smart being smarter instead of working harder to where you could have maintained being in the band? And then at that point, since that was your last tour... How did you, what did you take away from that going into to start your new career, basically? Because that's the end of one and kind of closing the book on it, but then starting your new one. But you are taking on a completely different role within the thing that you're leaving.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, I kind of, I kind of I have this, I, I've been able to figure out how to be. Yeah, I'll use the word successful in in a few different realms. And so it might be, maybe it's kind of like a blind confidence. And I, I'm a big fan of knowing that in this age of the internet, that you can, you can find out how to do anything. You know, I know, I know people have redone concrete around their pool by watching YouTube videos. So yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. So I, I, a lot of times I'll just kind of, if I start, I start having self doubt, even doing this book, this book took me, took me four years to write. And I thought about quitting 15 or 20 times and thought, well, who am I? I'm not an author, I'm not a publisher. Why do I think I can self publish something? But then I would remind myself, well, why not me? And, and you know, nobody ever heard of John A. Cuff or Tim Ferriss at some point, you know? And so just, you know, the resources are out there. I can figure out how to copyright something. I can figure out how to trademark something. I can figure out how to get a book printed. And I think that was the same thing when it was that point with, you know, the, the tour manager thing, it was just like, you know, and so when, you know, when you say, yeah, I was out of money, I guess kind of how it works. And I talk in the book a little bit about how there's this idea that I used to think that if a band had a video on MTV, they must be a millionaire. And that's not the case, (laughs) but you know, we would get paid in lump sum. So we would get an advance for, you know, each record. And then that money basically has to last you until, you know, you start getting money from the next record. So I think, uh, you know, I think the, you know, from welcome was a chunk of money. Let's say, you know, it's 70, 80, 000, And then that, you know, Is lasted that, me now, two years. So I was gonna
1: say, was that per person? Cause you, you mentioned that number kind of roughly before, but I wasn't sure if that was like, here's 70 80, for the whole band to split or 70 80, for you.
2: Yeah. That's, that's what I would have ended up with okay. personally.
1: And <clears throat> so, then obviously that's getting taxed and all that stuff too. So it's even less. Er,
2: yeah. 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 So, so in advance, our advances were anywhere from, I'd say, you know, 150, 200,000, maybe for the first record up to, you know, three or 400,000. So when, with Blue Sky research, I think, I think our advance, cause we did a publishing deal with universal. And I think our overall, uh, advance was like $500,000, but you know I kind of I show the, a breakdown in the book of where you know that a lot of that money comes off the top so seventeen and a half percent went to our manager ten percent went to your booking agent five percent goes to your business manager five uh, percent goes to your lawyer so it's you know all these people take their money off the top then it gets taxed so I think my money from blue Sky research was uh, you know maybe sixty thousand and then it's like okay now that's got to last you so we had it set up with our business manager where we would he would just give us an amount that we agreed to live on. I think at the time it was two thousand dollars a month. So, you know, so then all of a sudden it took a long time to write that record, then it took a long time to record that record. Then we went on tour. And so that whole record cycle was like three years. And so yeah, you break say sixty thousand, say if I was living on twenty thousand a year, that's, you know, what, 14, 15 bucks an hour. And so you know when when I when I tell them the story I'm on stained I'm on tour with Stained and POD and Flywheel Leaf, and I go to my ATM and I've got 20 bucks in there, you know I I was living on 2,000 bucks a month I had a 300 dollars car payment and a 400 dollars rent payment and uh, you know my share of an electric bill and uh, you know I wasn't we weren't spending money on drugs and women and fancy cars and fancy houses it was just you know normal living expenses and uh, but that yeah, was just that you know there wasn't any new money coming in from the record because it wasn't selling well and um yeah it was just one of those things like okay yeah i've got to go get a job so kind of like how i approached the drumming thing like it wasn't an option for me to not play on the welcome record it also wasn't an option for me to go back on the road and not make money so um you know i kind of did my research online i called a couple friends say hey if i'm going to do this tour manager thing what do i got to do and i you know, I remember back to just seeing things that our tour manager would do. Okay, he's got to put a day sheet up, and he's got to call the venues ahead of time and talk about loading, and talk about what's going to be on the rider, and how we're going to get paid. And so, yeah, I just kind of, I just, I guess, I've always had the confidence that okay, somebody else is able to figure this out. I should be able to figure it out too. And and you know, your question's interesting about uh, could. The band have been successful longer if the reins would have been taken earlier and here's the really this is what i and i've i've really just come to this conclusion within the last you know maybe year or so of really thinking about the industry what's sad about the industry is that you know everybody that you know when you get signed and when you get plugged in that way since everything's based on the gross so everything everything's based on what how much money Taproot, in our example, was bringing in. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 everyone gets their money off the gross. So the more money that's coming in from expenses, uh, the more money that everyone has to take their percentage off of. So there's no incentive for, you know, your manager and your agent and all those other organizations to lower the revenue. And I've kind of learned this from business too, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, so it's like, if, if, if I were to have a magic wand and like change the industry, in fact, some of the things that I'm doing with Taproot now we've talked about, we're, because I'm kind of back involved and we're kind of doing a couple shows here and there, but we're talking about things in terms of the profit. So it's like, okay, if I was, if I was gonna, you know, if I, if I, if, and I've actually given advice to some new bands, I would say, here are all the things you need to look out for And and you should be thinking about things in terms of making sure that you're still financially viable and asking those questions. I mean, yeah, if I if I would have asked my business manager, hey, how come we had to get an $80,000 advance to be on OzFest for two months? Well, it's because it's the tour bus and it's da 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 da. Well, what what, would happen if we went into a van and trailer? But, you know, so the thing is, if if we got an $80,000 loan from Atlantic for OzFest. Well, our manager gets 17.5% of that. So what's our manager's incentive to tell us how it really works? Um, Because then all of a sudden the revenue coming in is going down. And so it's kind of like this sick thing that, you know, everyone, everyone has to convince everyone that you need all these things and you need to be spending all this money because it means there's more revenue, which means everyone gets their money off the top there's, there's more to take their percentage off of. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's a really, really weird thing. By the time you figure all that out, it's like your career's over. Like, you know, I, I was learning this stuff from between 2000 and 2006. And by the time I figured out how it worked and tour managed my own tour, my own tour, it was like, well, we were already on the down cycle of taproot and it was too late. You know, I think I had 16,000 bucks cash in a suitcase. And I remember, you know, having a big stack of twenties and we each got like four grand at the end of that tour. And it was like, holy crap we have cash at the end of tour this is amazing it was just so foreign. we never ever you know made money on tour but hey you know what i mean we got to you know we got to do it really big and really fun because we were in really really nice tour buses and on some of the world's biggest tours for a long time so yeah i mean looking back i mean it's great that i got to have those experiences and i feel like my life's been on the path it's supposed to be anyway
1: so at this point I'm kind of wrapping it up just because I've, I've had you for almost two hours. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, it's been fun though. Um, so you guys did some reunion shows. You did the, I think it was the 15th anniversary of Gift. Uh, oh, welcome. I thought. Well, I thought we went and saw Gift because that wasn't. Oh
2: yeah, okay. Sorry. So we just we just did the 15th anniversary
1: of Welcome right. earlier yep. this year. Yeah. 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 You did two shows. Yep. Yeah. I went to the the Gift one, and that, I think that was oh, like cool. two or three years ago. So you guys did the the Welcome. Reunion, and both shows sold out Machine Shop, uh, or all three shows, I should say, between the two records, sold out. Uh, So obviously there's still a demand for you guys to to play shows, and you guys are getting ready to do the 20 Years of Taproot tour on December 23rd at... It's not the Fillmore. Yeah, Token Lounge. Token Lounge, yep. I was going to say it's somewhere else, like in Westfield, I think, uh, not Detroit proper. But at this point, is. Is, like, everybody that's been involved in the band, like, is everyone going to kind of be involved? I know there's... I know when I went to the gift show, and from what I understand of the Welcome show as well, uh, Mike's not been a part of that for whatever the reason may be. Um, But is the goal technically outside of maybe Mike to have everyone who's been involved in the band to play, you know, the different songs over the last 20 years of Taproot?
2: Yeah, so I think... Yeah, so... I don't see Mike participating in a show anytime soon, although there are a couple people that are involved that are open to that, but there are other people that aren't open to that at this point in time. <laughs> so same, but, same old, same old. Um, yeah, 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 you got it. So, yeah, as of right now, it's, it's going to be similar to how we handled the welcome shows. I'm going to play drums on... All the stuff that i played on and then the current drummer dave is going to play on all of the the newer stuff and i'm not sure when that where that line's gonna be drawn we've really talked about set lists or anything but it could be it could be drawn at our long road home where i played on the record but i didn't go on tour in support of that and then of course they had played the fifth and episodes without me and yeah it's actually kind of funny i think I, i've gotten to know dave the current drummer a little bit and i do feel a little bit I feel bad for Nick the guy from Jetta Red that you mentioned that that took my place when I left and yeah I think that's just a <clears throat> that's a hard role for anyone to fill I mean I think he got a lot of flack uh you know especially well, initially
1: I was because, trying to think wasn't that? there sorry to cut you off wasn't there I thought there was some drama going on on the gift show because the person they had wasn't the drummer that ended up drumming that night because I remember people chattering about that at the show and being like well I knew it wasn't the original drummer but I just figured it was the dude they had yeah so what
2: if I remember because I think I was at that show and and I had texted with Phil the bass player that you know hey maybe I should come up and and play poem with you guys because it was crazy on that on that tour I'd actually been in two places where the tour was just by one was by vacation one by one's by accident once in Florida and once in Texas and then I was back home in Michigan when they so I played poem in Florida with them and in Texas with them. And then the last show was in Flint, Michigan. So I texted with Phil like, Oh, that'd be really fun. You know, maybe I should do it again. he's like, yeah, sounds great. Just come over to the side of the stage. And so I think the drama you're referring to was, uh, Nick, the guy who replaced me was, uh, was playing the entire gift show and yeah, whole nother story. But yeah, it was a very weird sensation watching a band that you were in for kind of the first time and hearing the songs that you helped, Play on and write, played back to you it was really surreal, but really cool. Like I had a, I had a whole different like appreciation for getting to watch my old band. It was, it was really cool. But so I'm standing there on the side of the stage, getting ready to play "Poem." Of course, of course, this is Nick's hometown t- too, so he kind of wants to finish the show. And I'm standing there and I'm getting ready to walk up, and I guess Nick kind of looks at Phil like, "What are you serious? Like I'm not playing this song and." Phil kind of likes, uh, you know, I don't know. Oh well, yeah. And so Nick kind of puts his head down and walks off stage. And then I walk up and I play the song and I believe he quit like five days after that. And I think, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, I think there'd been some, I think there'd been some, uh, you know, some unhappiness even leading up to that. So I think that might've been one of the final straws for Nick. And, um, so yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm friends with Nick. I've talked to him a couple of times just even recently and, you know, there's, there, there's all those, there's a lot of those weird situations with bands, and I guess with life in general, where, you know, hey, personalities clash, and we have bad communication, and, you know, hurtful stuff happens, you know, but.
1: At this point, are you guys maybe looking to some of the other bands that have been broken up uh, for a little bit, or just not touring, like, Under Oath is a, is a great example, like, the, that band went away, it just wasn't worth it for them to tour anymore, The the level of record sales weren't really doing that well the attendance kind of was waning are you guys maybe looking to to kind of borrow what they've been doing and kind of just doing like weekend warrior type stuff in the upcoming future and maybe potentially getting together and just kind of doing some stuff on your own self-releasing it or what's what's the future of Taproot at this point
2: yeah i think so the the shows that we did in may the welcome shows I, i think we were pleasantly surprised by the response and so it was it was exciting just to see that people still cared and that they would buy a ticket and that they would buy some merchandise and so I think we're still figuring out what the future might look like. And so, you know, we we all have I'm trying to this is a true statement. Yes, we all have children. Uh, we all have, you know, we're all married, we all have day jobs. So I think, you know, I don't I don't see us going, I don't see Tapper going on a full scale tour by any means probably ever and but you know steve who was a primary songwriter of the band i think he he wrote most of gift and he wrote most of plead the fifth even on guitar so those are probably considered kind of like the heavier type records he's basically has a whole new record written and i've heard four songs and they're crazy good they're really awesome and so He's got a lot of that recorded, so I think the future is when when it makes sense to, we would like to do some weekend warrior shows or, you know, we talked about, okay, if if we do a show in Flint and then we do a show in Detroit and those work well, then maybe we'll try a Chicago or a Cleveland or, you know, kind of just start to slowly venture out within driving distance and, and kind of see what happens. And as far as a record, I think, you know, my plan is for is to help Steve figure out how to uh, release that record. We'll f- we'll see what it means if Dave, the current drummer, and Phil are going to play on it and and put it under the Taproot name, but I think that's the direction that's looking to go, that it would be a Taproot record, and probably do some kind of a, you know, a, uh, well, I can't think of the service now, but the... Pledge
1: music is that what it is? Like an Indiegogo or like a GoFundMe or whatever. Like, yeah, a, yeah.
2: yeah. So I think would, I think it would probably be kind of a crowdfunding deal or do the pre-orders for the record and and yeah, I it's now that this book is kind of behind me, I'm I'm planning on trying to help get this record released because the stuff I heard is really good and a lot of people kind of bother me on social media asking for me to help it get released so I feel like I need to I need to help and uh yeah I think it's really good I think people are interested in it so I think that's the future I think there'll be a new record in 18 and some more shows and yeah it's pretty cool it's just it's exciting that even though I've got my day job (laughs) that people still care about this band and that we still get to play together and have some fun
1: Lastly, let's talk about your band Westfall because that's something I noticed uh, you are doing. You play in two two church bands, it sounds like, and then you have Westfall. So it sounds like you technically have Correct. three bands that you're you're actively involved in. So you still are keeping up with your chops. It sounds like on a very weekly basis.
2: Yeah, so uh, Westfall. It's funny. So another connection to the the Jetta Red thing. So my my friend Shane, who was the guitar player of Jetta Red, and you know the drummer Nick became Taproots drummer when I left. He is a producer and he has a studio and we actually have a, the the guys, the guys in Westfall, there's a previous version of Westfall It's probably four years ago. And he did a couple of their recordings and their drummer had left to go do something else. And so since Shane was a mutual friend of me and the Westfall guys, they had a bunch of shows booked for the summer that they needed someone to fill in. So he introduced us, I you know I listened to some of their music we jammed together it really worked out well and at that point I really I hadn't been in a band you know since let's see I left in 2008 this was probably 5 years ago so I hadn't been in a band in about f- 4 years and so it felt good to be jamming with people again and so I did the shows there were some outdoor just beer tents and bars <laughs> and you know and but it was really fun and so we did some covers and some originals. And at the end of that year, they said, you know, Hey, so what are we doing here? Like, are you in the band? And I basically said, and they're, they're a little bit younger than me. I think they're five years younger than me. And I said, you know, if you guys want to go do the whole thing, like try to get a deal and all that, then you should find somebody else. Cause I'm not in that phase of my life anymore. But if you want to keep doing this and maybe write some songs, like I'm in, this is fun. And so, yeah, so I joined and yeah, so it's, we've, it's it's just great the way that we've been able to fit it around our schedules. Like right now our 2018 is completely booked because we we share a Google calendar and we all block out the birthdays and anniversaries and holidays and vacations and that we all have and then what remains is about, you know, half of the open Saturdays and then we've got our cycle of kind of bars and clubs that we play at and we filter those in and we play at each one of them three or four times a year. And then that's it, our, our whole year is booked. So it's kind of fun, and and we're, we're, you know, part of the package that I've done for the presale of this book is an EP that uh, we ended up recording. I mean, we did this recording for like 750 bucks, and it's, it was this young guy named Paul in a studio in a small town in Michigan called the Pier,
0: mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, I mean, he's like this 20-something-year-old, I'll call him a kid. Who's just like figured out uh, Cubase, and he's like a genius. I mean, he's the the sound that we got out of the studio is just is pretty awesome. So, you know, I, I it's the AP is five songs. It's five original songs. They're hard rock, uh, you know, pretty straightforward hard rock songs, but with really good melodies. Westfall is a three piece band. Both guys sing, so neither one of us like we don't consider. That we have a singer because they both sing, which is I don't think I know of any other bands that don't have a singer per se because they both sing equally. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. And uh, so there's lots of harmonies, and yeah, they're just super talented guys. And I'm really proud of this little EP that we did. And we also have kind of three bonus tracks on there that are live songs that we did. We opened for Adam Gantier of Three Days Grace when he did an acoustic tour at the Machine Shop, so we played three songs acoustic. So those songs are on there as well, live acoustic songs. And it's funny, we, I guess we're kind of old school or just old. So we, <laughs> we made CDs for this. So I made that part of the promo pack, but then with the book, but once these are all out there, we're having a release party of the machine shop on November 17th. And once we have the CDs kind of formally released, then we're gonna put everything on the streaming services and all that stuff. So I'm actually going to learn a little bit about what that world's all about because I don't know much about it. So it's going to be fun to kind of have some new music on streaming services and see how the business end of that works. So yeah, it's all good.
1: Something that I really admired about you taking the time to write the book was I always wanted to write about music. I always grew up loving music. I always wanted to be a part in, in the music scene somehow. I wasn't necessarily the most proficient guitar player. I have a just a passion for music. I love learning about it and and so on and so forth. And it's led me to just learning how to book shows and and learning what that world is like and learning, you know, even doing this podcast, like just, it's something that I wanted to do and wanted to learn. But in the last handful of years, something I kind of did was I wanted to write about music. So I ended up slowly working my way through to a handful of different independent, you know, online sites to review shows or review CDs or interview bands and so forth Cool. And it was never anything I learned how to do, but I just, the passion took me to where it's like, you know, someone had a critique about something like, oh, I didn't like this about this. And it's like, oh, okay. Like I'll remember that for next time. But like, it'll be an interesting endeavor to just kind of challenge myself. And I've never yeah. had, I never went to school for it. Like high school is as far as I went, but it, just the drive and determination to do it. And that's something I, I kind of picked up through reading your, your the excerpts I've gotten of your book. Like. I had every intention of stretching it out over the course of like a day or two or three and just kind of slowly getting through like the hundred pages you sent me. And I read it in about an hour and a half. Going, oh, oh. that's good feedback. <laughs> and, th- and that's the thing is like, now I'm ready for the rest of the book and I'm very excited to read the rest of the book. And I think as someone who's read only, I think you said like two fifths of the book, I'm excited to read the other three fifths at this point and really kind of get, cause I think the part you gave me was more based on, on the band. And I think what yep. I'll get when I, Get the whole book is basically the how it applies to the self-help book type things that you've read and, and the correlation excuse me between everything which is kind of what i've been trying to do with this is the correlation between your band stories and how did you apply it to like what you've learned upon getting your new job in, in the career field that you're in now yeah for sure because i think it kind of helps showcase what the book is is like and i think i kind of see where some of these stories are going to go and how it applies it's kind of refreshing just to read something where it's like. Yeah, you didn't necessarily paint some people in the best picture, but on the flip side, it's like, I think that's the reality of it. Like, there's always two or three sides or four or five or six or seven sides to different things, but you're only speaking about things from your perspective in the book, and and it never is damning to any one person, like, even the, the bad things about Fred Durst that are in it aren't that he's a bad person. It's just that, you know, when you start mixing business into the music thing and then instead of having friends, like now someone's looking at you like a product and what can you make for them that it it shows that. And you know, I was able to take that away, but you know, it's, it was just very interesting to see someone who took their life experiences, did a a bunch of research on so many other books. I think it sounded like you had probably read about 15 or 20 books the best-selling like self-help successful books figuring out what's in those that is like the venn diagram of like what do these all share now how can i correlate like how can i marry that to what i've gone through and why i'm successful and then just start piecing it all together and i think it's a completely different approach to a a rock memoir as we'll call it and so i think it's something that should be applauded it's especially in a day and age like where people are as you know as people know there's so many ghostwriters and people don't write their own stories and typically by the time you start getting further along in the process by the time you send it to a publisher now it's like well we don't know that people are going to like this or well that person already has come back to us and said that you can't use their name or you can't use this story or you got to change this and it's like by the time you get whatever it is that you started with it's a completely different thing. It's very much like the music industry. We have these demos. We want to make this song. All right, well, no, we don't like that. Go ahead and change this and now move that around. And by the time you're with the finished product, it's not what it was set out to be. And I think this is going to be one of the most honest and sincere books in this kind of genre and realm. And it was really refreshing to read. That's what I think separates it from a lot of the books I've already read in this kind of style. And I think uh, I'm very excited to, for when this comes out. And uh, at this point, this is where we plug the book. It's, uh, again, True Rockstars, 12 Guiding Principles for Success and Happiness. Yeah, that's,
2: that's an interesting point.
1: Um, so this is where usually we'll, we'll plug the social. So I, I didn't actually write down the, the link to the pre-order for the book. Uh, so what is the, the pre-order for your book? Yeah, pre-order
2: is squareup.com slash store slash true rockstars. And if you go, if you're a Facebooker, if you just search True Rock Stars on Facebook, I've got a Shop Now button on there where you click and it takes you to that link. And yeah, I'm probably gonna extend the offer, if you will, for you know a, an undefined period of time. But basically for $19.99, you get the book and you get my Westfall Band's EP with eight songs and a signed drumstick. And I think I'm probably going to be out of stickers, but I've got a few orders left where this organization buckle up for Chi was formed when Chi from Deftones passed away basically from not wearing a seatbelt. And uh, this is pretty crazy actually. So his family is totally involved with these two women that run it. Uh, Thought it'd be cool to send me these stickers to include with this pack to make people more aware of wearing their seatbelts. And it actually has changed my behavior. i I don't like wearing my seatbelt, but I do think about Chi and put it on. Uh, So that's a great thing. But, yeah, actually, so Chi's niece Facebooked me, like, a week ago and said, hey, I heard that you used to tour with my uncle. Like, could you tell me some stories? And I was just like, whoa, this is crazy. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so I sent her some pictures of me and Chi from when we were on tour. And I told her, I was like, yeah, I'm going to tell you some stories. You know, she says, yeah, I, I just didn't. I didn't get to know that side of him very well and and his her dad is Chi's brother Ming who was on tour as well he's kind of a quieter guy so I didn't get to know him very well but uh yeah it's just interesting how a lot of this stuff comes full circle and you know the fact that I might get to help Cheese niece know something more about him from the side that I got to see which is a really nice caring guy that was fun to be on tour with is really cool you know so yeah, yeah.
1: So thanks and then uh socials is if you want to plug your own socials as well sure yeah so my you can
2: follow me it's i think all my stuff's pretty easy it's uh it's jared montague on facebook and instagram and twitter and then true rock stars is at true rock stars for twitter uh true rock stars for facebook and i think it's true underscore rock stars on instagram so awesome. yeah that's it
1: and then we always end these episodes with a song, so what uh, would you like me to end the episode on? Could be a Taproot song, could be a Westfall song, could be just something that you've been jamming the last month or so, could be whatever, and then maybe a little backstory on why you chose a song. Oh, that's a good one.
2: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go ahead and say this. the This band, No Resolve, is the band that I was referring to when I talked about a band that I've been helping to give some insight into the music industry, and... They're a really great hard rock band. They are unsigned. They're getting a lot of attention at Sirius XM Radio. They've done everything kind of independently so far, and they're actually going to open the show with Taproot on December 23rd at Token Lounge. So they're, they have a song right now called Love Me to Death that's being played on XM Radio. So I would say No Resolve, Love Me to Death. Really good hard rock song really good guys, Michigan. That's been kind of a theme of our talk. So
1: that's the song. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. And uh, it's been a fun chat and uh, very much looking forward to your book. So uh, again, thank you for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you in Detroit in a couple, couple months.
2: Yeah, for sure. And again, and thanks for your insight on the book. I mean, this, this is, this feels really like the feeling I got before a record was going to be released because I worked so hard on it and you don't know how people are going to receive it. So to hear some good feedback is really is is encouraging. So I don't really have any real big expectations for the book. I think it'd be really cool if it connects with a lot of people. But uh, just the fact that it's done and it sounds like people, you know, you yourself understand what I was trying to get across is really exciting. So I appreciate that. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thank you. So that was my chat with Jared Montague of Taproot. Some really fun stories uh, of the old new metal scene, some fun Fred Durst stories, some interesting Deftone stories, which if you've been listening to this podcast at all, Deftone stories are uh, always welcome, especially in the midst of our Deftones discography run-through. It was kind of interesting to hear the story of Chi not being a fan of the self-titled record and saying that it it sucked. Uh, So I know, like I said in some of the chats I've done with Fallon, that some of the band members over the years have said that... Saturday Night Wrist and self-titled record are not good records in their eyes. So it's kind of interesting to hear firsthand that uh, even Jared had had a story like that. And the Jared Leto story of, of giving him the book while in Delaware uh, was also an interesting, fun story for me, being from Delaware. Uh, also of note today... Uh, While I was editing this episode, I actually got a conversation done with Mike D'Antonio of Killswitch Engage fame, so that should be next week's episode, Uh, so look forward to that, because that was a lot of fun and has been a long time coming. Uh, I often say that uh, I try to get really great guests, and getting numbers up and getting all that kind of stuff on socials definitely helps, and and I definitely think uh, I've been trying really hard to get a strong online presence uh, for this. So... With that being said, if you would like to follow Jared Montague across the social networks, you can do such uh, by just finding Jared Montague on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all one word. That's J-A-R-R-O-D-M-O-T-A-G-U-E, Jared Montague. Uh, If you would like to follow the book page uh, anywhere, it's True Rockstars on Facebook, True Rockstars on Twitter, and if you're looking for it on Instagram, it's True underscore Rockstars uh, if you would like to follow me across any of the social networks as well, you can do such on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Johns Untitled Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Johns Untitled Pod, and you can email me at johnson Pod at gmail.com. If you would like to pre-order the book or just order a copy as a whole, you can go to squareup.com backslash store backslash true rockstars. And you will find the book. It's 20 bucks, and as you heard uh Jared say, you get a lot of stuff with it. The Westfall ep the book itself Uh, i saw over on uh, jared's instagram that he got the palette full of the books Uh, so i know he's very excited for the books to come in and it seems like a lot of his friends and fans are very excited for this read as well uh going to get out of this episode very quickly just because this is almost a two-hour episode and and i don't want to keep you any longer than i have to uh so we end the episode as we always do with a song and as you heard jared say at the very end we wanted to go with a band from around like the Michigan area. They are called No Resolve. This song is called Love Me to Death. If you like this and you're in the Michigan or Midwest area, you can see them opening for Taproot on December 23rd for 20 years of Taproot. Talk to you next week. You are the
0: self that keeps me changed. You are the wrath that feeds my range. The moment I'm down- In a stay Drawing me in with every breath Leading with hands around my neck Whatever you want is what I get Don't ever forget Cause no one can break me like you do